Let me pray. Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. God's power is made perfect in our weakness. That is, is one of the most compelling verses in the New Testament, I think, is that verse in chapter 12 of 2 Corinthians, in verse 9. God said, or Jesus said, just says he pleaded with the Lord. Jesus says, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. I want to give you a little bit of a heads up that... Uh, this might be a bit hard for you this morning, what we're talking about this topic. It's a topic that can be infinitely comforting and encouraging to the one who yields to God's work in our lives. But if we have a discontent spirit and a prideful heart, if we try to throw off the reins and spit out the bit that God has put in our mouths, today's topic will be aggravating to you. You might hate the idea that God would allow and even actively put you in a place where you are helpless and weak and needy. After all, who would among us would want to be put in a place of weakness and need? You might want to cry today while hearing this message, and that's okay. Let the tears flow. Pour out your heart to the Lord and let your brothers and sisters in Christ comfort you. It is better for us to open up our hearts and deal with these things rather than block our ears and grow bitter towards God and towards those around us. So if you're in pain, please don't pretend like it's not there. Bring it before the Lord. And so I would love to know after the service today, do you find encouragement in this word, in this verse? Or do you find dread? Is it uh, God's music in your ears or is it sand in your food? But this is the word, God's power is made perfect in our weaknesses. And so to get our hearts and, and minds around this idea, around this word, I'm going to tell you five stories that show God's power is made perfect in our weakness. Five stories of God's power completed in our weakness. The first story reveals uh, shows that our weakness reveals God's character. Our weakness reveals God's character. So let me tell you about a bloke who had it all. He had the girl, he had the family, he had the property, he had wealth and good health, and he was respected. And on top of it all, he was a good bloke in God's eyes. God thought that he was a good guy. His name was Job. And so Satan rocks up in the heavenly court one day and he says to God, have you seen Job? Sorry, God says to Satan, have you seen Job? Isn't he the greatest example of a man who loves and serves me? And Satan answers back, come on, he only loves you because you give him lots of nice stuff. You've bribed him into your service. And so Satan implies that there's nothing special about getting someone to serve you if you give them lots of good stuff. He's, he thinks there's no power in what God had done for Job. God says, okay then, let's see what happens. When, it, when it's all taken away, let's see what happens. You've got permission to strip him of all that he has, just don't harm his body. And so Satan sets out to show the shallowness of God's work in the heart of humankind, but he's surprised. After taking away Job's children, 
his property, his wealth, Job immediately turned to God and worshipped him. He said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So Satan tries to have another chop at undermining God's power. He says to God, Look, he remained faithful to you because he's just trying to protect his own life. Job's really only staying loyal so that you won't smite him. Okay then, God says, afflict him however you like, just don't kill him. And so Satan gives Job an awful, crippling bodily disease, so bad that Job wished he was dead. Better to be dead than to experience all this pain. He was crushed. He was brought low. He was tormented. But he wouldn't turn on God. Even though God had allowed everything that happened to him. Instead, uh, Job says to his wife, Shall we receive good from God? And shall we not also, and shall we not receive evil? Evil here being a bad, not as in um, morally evil. Shall we receive good from the Lord? And shall we not also receive bad? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. So try as he might, Satan could not undo the work of God in Job's heart. And now you might sit back now and go, wow, Job was so strong. We should be like Job. But Job is not the hero of this story. The story isn't you overcome, you can overcome Satan's tests. The story is our weakness is where God's glory shines through. Our weaknesses reveal God's power and glory. And so in the midst of all the suffering and the pain, what was happening? Job didn't know what was going on. He didn't get a phone call from heaven saying, oh, by the way, this is the reason why all this is happening to you. God was shown as good and Satan was undermined. And Job, at least at the time, was none the wiser. Job sat and defended himself from his friend's accusations. He questioned his existence. He questioned what he had done to deserve all this sorrow and despair. And God never answers Job's questions at the time. Instead, God silences Job by revealing more of Job's creatureliness and limitations. Job is brought even lower and made even more humble as God speaks to him and says, Where were you? Where were you when I made the world? Why did this happen? So that God's glory and power would be revealed. As God brought Job low, God's power and glory showed up Satan as the conniving snake that he is. As God brought Job low, God's power and glory showed that God is both the giver of all good things and that he has the right to take them away, even if we don't know why. As God brought Job low, God's power and glory showed up as God answered Job, speaking of the endless wonders of his might and wisdom that humanity cannot grasp. As God brought Job low, God's power and glory showed through in Job's heart. God's work there was permanent and strong. In the middle of Job's weakest moments, as he struggled to come to grips with what happened to him, God was vindicated. God showed it to the world. 
to Satan, to all the angels, and even to us many years removed sitting here today, that God's power is perfectly revealed in the midst of human weakness. In our second story, we see our weakness is for God's victory. Our weakness is for God's victory. So, stepping forward a few centuries later in time, God's people were oppressed by the Midianites. They were basically slaves. Every time they tried to grow food, uh, the Midianites took it away or destroyed it. God's people had to hide their food so that they could keep some for themselves. And the people cried out to God, who had saved them before. At the end of their rope, unable to fight back, unable to even make their own food, they were weak enough to see that they needed to look to God for his provision. God answered their prayers, but he wouldn't do it in a way that they would forget so quickly and move on with their life. He would work in their weakness to show God's power and victory. So he called up a bloke named Gideon. Kids, do you remember when we talked about Gideon a few months ago? This is not an impressive bloke. He was so cowardly that even after an angel appeared to him with a message from God, he still tried to shirk his duty. But Gideon did manage to rustle up an army of about 32,000 men to face the Midianites. But the Midianites had pulled together an army that was so big, they couldn't even estimate how big it was. It was massive. It was described like, like sand on the seashore. So with their measly 32,000 blokes, Gideon's army seemed already insignificant. And God said, you've got too many men. Anybody who's scared can go home. And so 22,000 blokes went home. And then there was, what, the 10,000 left, and God said, you've got too many men. And so they famously, they went down to the watering hole, and whoever drank their water while kneeling was kept, and whoever uh, bent down to drink their water was sent home. And Gideon was left with 300. 300 to face an army so big that they couldn't even estimate how big it was. At midnight, those 300 went down to the camp and blew trumpets. They yelled, they waved torches, and they smashed jars. They created a big ruckus so that the Midianite army woke up confused and everybody started attacking each other. And eventually, after much friendly fire, they fled and Gideon called out the local tribes to chase the Midianites out. So God used 300 blokes and a cowardly leader to overcome a massive army. 300 blokes won the battle by waving some torches and shouting a bit, playing musical instruments and breaking some pottery. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm pretty sure if you, if you join the Air Force and, and go to um, their, their school of how to wage war, I'm pretty sure these things don't come up. Playing musical instruments, breaking pottery. But for these blokes, their job was to be obedient to God and he used their weak state. From a military standpoint, a very weak state to bring about a great victory. God weakened his people by allowing them to be overtaken by the Midianites when they turned aside from him. It was a punishment for their sin. God made his people weaker by thinning out their ranks. But God brought them low so that God's power and glory would be center stage, not humans' power. We have a tendency to keep putting ourselves in the center stage to talk ourselves up, to look to ourselves for solution and to the world's problems. 
When we take our eyes off God, we descend into pride and rebellion and forget the Lord. So the Lord needs to bring us low to see our own feebleness before we can be shaken to our senses and run to our Savior. God's power brings victory in our weakness. In our third story, we see that our weakness is for God's provision. Our weakness is for God's provision. We move forward in time, another couple hundred years, and we end up with a lady named Elizabeth. She was a ministry wife. She was married to a priest. She was a, a godly lady who longed for children, but God kept that back from her. Elizabeth and her husband lived in a time when, when many people had turned their back on God, yet that couple remained faithful. They were faithful, they were righteous, but God kept the blessing back. Elizabeth didn't know why. She didn't have the medical resources to discover the physical reasons. She didn't have a, a letter from God outlining his plan for her life and why she would suffer this way. Instead, she and her husband lived in the day to day. They had to live year to year, hoping and praying that God might give them what they longed for a child. Elizabeth bore the depressing pain of longing for the good and noble office of motherhood, but having it kept back from her month after month. And not only did she suffer the internal torment of having these good dreams go unfulfilled, Elizabeth had to suffer the shame in the eyes of her friends and family, because at that time her society would have thought that childlessness was a punishment from God. She would have wondered, what have I done to deserve this? And they grew older and older, and as they grew, their hope faded because their prayers had gone unanswered for decades. They were low, they were helpless, they were weak, and no power of their own could help them. Yet in this weakness, at their lowest point, when all seemed impossible, the Lord sent a baby. This, chief, this, this, this child was a gift from God at the right moment, given in the midst of human inability to show God's provision. God's power of provision was shown in Elizabeth's weakness. God kept her low and longing so that he could give her the great gift at the right time. And not just at the right time for them, but at the right time for God's people. You see, the child that God gave Elizabeth and Zechariah was none other than the forerunner of Jesus Christ, the one who would prepare the people of God for the arrival of God himself to walk the earth. This child would bring more honor to Elizabeth than 10 regular sons could bring. This son was the mightiest prophet of God that walked the earth and God used the weakest circumstances to provide him. In Elizabeth's weakness, God provided the right man at the right time to herald the coming of Jesus. Any earlier would have been too earlier. Any later would have been too late. But like the valves in your engine, if you, know, if you know how an engine works, they always open at just the right time to let in the fuel air mixture so that your engine can go. Too early, too late, and it doesn't work. But isn't it cruel? 
Is it, isn't it harsh to keep back the longing of one's heart, especially the good longings of one's heart? Isn't it cold to keep us low and crush our spirits? Friends, we are children of God in Jesus Christ, God's people, God's children. And if children, then we expect our heavenly Lord to father us, to care for us, to protect us, to discipline us even when it hurts. It's not cruel for the father to hold back his child's hand from the hot plate. It's not cruel for a father to keep back bread from the celiac. It's not cruel for a father to confine his child to a car seat. It's not cruel for a father to allow his child to trip and fall so that she may learn to walk. It's not cruel for a father to correct his child day after day, week after week, to train them into maturity. In fact, the Scriptures tell us that it is cruel when parents do not discipline their sons, their children. Um, In Proverbs, it says, "'Whoever spares the rod hates his son or his his children, "'but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him.'" This is the wisdom of God from the Proverbs to parents And if we are children of the best father, how much more will our father do a good job of disciplining us, of leading us, of, of challenging us? The discipline of God is a sign that God loves you. It is the unloved son that doesn't get disciplined. In Hebrews it says, Is it not for discipline that you have to endure? God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness For the moment, all discipline seems painful and rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. God cares for us, and so he brings us into our weaknesses so that we might be prepared to receive his provision, to know his power, to have the peaceful fruit of righteousness, that we may share his holiness. What are all the sufferings of this life in comparison to the weight of glory, to the eternal joy of knowing and meeting God face to face? Isn't it good to suffer a little now so that we might be prepared for eternity? For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Just dwell on that for a second. Beyond all comparison. There is no way to try and understand it. It is that good. It is that, it is that heavy. Is that wonderful? And so our sufferings and our trials right now seem light and momentary. So give me soul-crushing despair if it means I might be better prepared to meet my Lord face to face. Give me tears of sorrow that I may cry tears of joy in the Lord's presence. Give me a broken heart now so that I might experience the healing of Christ. Give me sickness of the mind if it means I might know truth himself. 
Give me blind eyes if it means that I may glimpse the majesty of my king. Take away everything that I have if it means I might know the provision of God. God's power is provision in our weakness. In our next story, we see that our weakness means salvation. Our weakness means salvation. John the Baptist heralded the coming of God. Jesus came bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. Jesus came as a man, though he was God, and he took weakness of the human frame. He left behind the glories of eternal majesty to get dirty feet as he walked the streets of Israel. He humbled himself. He made himself vulnerable. The God of the world made himself killable. And so he was born a king in a shed. He donned a human body. He was born into a poor family. He lived in a small town. And he went into the world preaching a message of weakness, not look inside your heart and find strength to overcome your problems, not muster up enough strength to overcome all the difficulties in your life, not try and uh, work the political process to your advantage so that everything works out for you, not try and build a big enough bank account so that you can uh, withstand any of the storms that come your way. He went into the world saying, you can't save yourself, but God will save you. You see, God is often called a crutch. Some people call a religion a crutch, or Jesus a crutch, implying that he is for people who need help to walk through life. The implication being that you wouldn't need God if you were strong enough to do it on your own. But your own strength is not enough to get you anywhere but hell. You can put on a brave face, you can reject the Jesus crutch, but all you're doing is limping your way to the pit of destruction. Jesus came in weakness to save the people who realize they're weak and needy. He came not to to help the well, as he says, but to come and heal the sick. And Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He went in human frailty to be crucified on a cross, to be killed by the people he created on wood from trees that he grew in the plan that he submitted to under the Father. He died in the place of the weak, suffering the wrath of God and the guilt of mankind so that the weak could receive the righteousness of God. He died to bring his people together, to undo the evil overlords. Those who look strong, they look like they have the upper hand, but they'll be undone by weakness. Those who have the knife over Aslan's throat will be destroyed. The evil that yearned for the death of Jesus will be undone. God's people will be raised up. And Ezekiel prophesied this. He said, this is what the Lord says through Ezekiel. I will seek the lost and I will bring back the strayed and I will bind up the injured and I will strengthen the weak and the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. Using the imagery of sheep, he will feed them. Weakness is the gateway to salvation. 
Weakness is the gateway to salvation. Weakness is the way to the power of God. Weakness is where God's power is perfected, completed, ended. Weakness is for our salvation, both for our entry into salvation as people who have to give up all of our notions of our own ability to save ourselves and humble ourselves before God. But weakness is where our salvation is secured, Jesus using his life and laying it down as a ransom to purchase our own. I mentioned Aslan before. Are you familiar with the story of uh, the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe? When I think it's Edmund. Edmund turns his back on the good guys and tries and goes over to the bad guys, the white witch. But how is he saved? Aslan gives himself up, puts himself in the place of Edmund, so that Edmund may go free. So he could be slain on the stone table. But the power of Aslan in that moment is put aside. He puts aside his power and strength in in what looks like a giving up. But in the lowest moment, when he puts his power aside, the relinquishing of that power ends up in the salvation of someone else. In Second Corinthians chapter 13, it says, He, that's Jesus, was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. To be in Jesus is to live in the power of God is to be weak. God's power is made perfect in our weakness. God's power is salvation in our weakness. In our fifth and final story, we see that weakness reveals the gospel. Weakness, our weakness, reveals the gospel. After Jesus died and and rose again, he ascended into heaven and he sent people out into the world with the message of his salvation. And he sent a particular man out into the world, that man being Paul. Paul took this message of foolishness into the world. He kicked up an international storm by proclaiming that the Son of God, killed by mere men, died for sinners. And he taught that salvation was not through knowledge of secret mysteries. He taught that uh, the cutting of the foreskin was pointless, that there was no way that anybody could possibly think they could get into heaven by mustering up enough goodness. The only way was to Give up yourself and cling to Jesus alone. He taught that when you come to grips with your weakness, you can rely on the power of God to make you alive in Christ. And Paul took this message out. He proclaimed it everywhere, high and low, rich and poor, to the sick and the well. This gospel went all across the world as the Apostle Paul fulfilled his special commission to take the gospel to the the nations, to preach it before kings and governors and even a Caesar. And Paul was a great bloke. From a Christian standpoint, he was top-notch. He had an amazing conversion story. Doesn't everybody want a good conversion story? He followed Christ wholeheartedly. He was theologically trained by the best teachers of the day. He had a great family history coming uh, from a line that was tied to biblical heroes. He had been visited in visions by Jesus himself. And he had seen thousands and thousands come to faith in Jesus under his ministry. He healed people, countless people from their illnesses. 
And he had stood firm with Jesus through countless assaults and attacks. Like, that's a high bar, a high good example to follow. He had, a, he had an awesome resume. And if anybody could pull rank in the church, it would have been Paul. He knew a thing or two. He had the experience and he had the qualifications to back it up. And God had given him this blessing. God had given him so much. And it even appears that, that God had given him a special vision of being able to see heaven and to hear and see of wondrous things that cannot be told. Paul had every reason to be proud as the greatest leader of the Christian church. But God wanted to keep him from pride and conceit. God wanted to protect Paul from our sinful tendency to lord it over our brothers and sisters. God wanted to keep Paul humble. So first, he forbid Paul from being able to tell what he saw in his vision. He'd visited, but he wasn't allowed to tell anyone. And secondly, God sent a messenger of Satan to harass Paul, to keep him low and weak. He says it himself. To keep me from becoming conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. So using the forces of evil for good, God gave Paul some torment so that it would not be, he would not be carried away in pride and self-reliance. We, we don't know exactly how this thorn, this stake in the flesh, what it was. It could have been some disease or some mental illness. Perhaps it was a great temptation that never subsided. We, we just don't know. But whatever it was, it was like walking around with an arrow sticking out of you. You imagine what that would be like? It's what Paul, Paul felt like with the torment that he experienced. And he pleaded with God to take it away. Please, please, please take it away. But what's God's answer? My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Then Paul says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Paul was made low. Paul was made weak so that God's power could shine through, so that God's power could be revealed, so that people wouldn't look at Paul and say, oh, wow, isn't he great? But so that people would look at Paul and go, wow, isn't Jesus great? Our lives in Jesus are not meant to tell a story about how Jesus helped us overcome our fears or how Jesus gave us a good job or how Jesus helped us conquer some particular sin. Our lives must tell a story about a great saviour who rescues us in the midst of our weakness. God's power finds its goal in our weakness, transforming us into the image of Christ, turning our eyes away from ourselves and taking our trust from ourselves and putting it in God. Any weakness that brings God, that God, sorry, any weakness that brings, let me try that a third time. Any weakness that God brings us into is the place where God's power shows up. We think it's our job to overcome the difficulties and weaknesses in our life. But Jesus wants to shine through those weaknesses. He will take hold of us and secure us when we're at the end of our rope, not when we can think we do it ourselves. 
Paul would go on to say, for the sake of Christ, then I'm content with weaknesses. Content. I, brothers and sisters, I hope you can get to the place where you can say this. I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul got it. He got that his weaknesses were good for him. He is content to be brought low because it means he's resting in the strength of Christ and not in his own pride. In Paul's weaknesses, the gospel was revealed that even Paul, the best of us, needs Jesus just as much as you or I. God's power reveals the gospel in our weakness. So where does that leave us as we head towards the end? Where does that leave us? Well, I hope that you can find encouragement and joy even, that you might be able to find contentment in the trials and the, and the tribulations that come your way, in the weaknesses that you face. But I want to address particularly the temptation for us to try and undo the hardships that God has put on us. So what I'm not saying is that we shouldn't seek what is good and right. Yes, we can seek healing and blessing. Yes, we can pray and pray that God would free us from our trials. Yes, we, we can look for a way out. But when the way is blocked by God, do not try and jump the gate. Content yourself with Jesus who has made you low so that his power may shine through. It won't be easy. Nobody said it's going to be easy. Our temptation when they're in the midst of difficulties is to try and correct it in our own power. But we can fall into going about it the wrong way. For instance, if you are out of work, we, don't, we, we are in the midst of a trial, right? But the way to correct that is not to then sin by stealing. We entrust ourselves to God who is at work. We are often brought into circumstances that we loathe, but we shouldn't go about it in a way that is sinful. Um, in particular, thinking about um, circumstances around relationships like marriage. You know, perhaps that you are single and you don't want to be single, but we don't go about addressing that godly desire by marrying somebody that God doesn't want us to marry. Or when we're married and for some reason or rather, our marriage is not good or the person that we're married to has changed and has become ungodly, then that doesn't mean that then we are justified in sinning against that person because um, we are now in a situation where we are in a great trial. God may bring many trials against us. Uh, poverty, illness, injury, unemployment, depression, deaths, in our family, in great debt, persecuted. But what we shouldn't do is rail at God for not giving us what we want. And we shouldn't try and circumvent these circumstances by sinning. We rest in what the Lord has for us, looking for the time when he brings us out of it. When we are suffering, we should do what Peter says and say, let those who suffer according to God's will Entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So entrust your souls to your faithful creator while you're resting in him. The gospel of the weak and the afflicted shines forth as you rest in him. 
Here you can know the power of Jesus as a Savior who loves you and rescues you through no power of your own. A Savior who cannot coexist with self-reliance and pride. Jeremiah Burroughs wrote a wonderful book called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. And he said this, A gracious heart thinks this way, The Lord has been pleased to bring down my circumstances. Now, if the Lord brings down my heart and makes it equal to my circumstances, I am well enough. So when God brings down his circumstances, he does not so much labor to raise up his circumstances again as to bring his heart down to his circumstances. So to kind of paraphrase that, it's better for us to be destitute and, and in a better place with God than to have you know, goodness and the blessings of life. It's better for us uh, to have our, our circumstances destroyed, so to speak, and to be good and joyful and happy in the Lord. We're not here to have a good time on this earth, uh, though we do enjoy it uh, as, we, as we're here in the Lord's blessing. But our goal isn't to enjoy this life, you know, and just have a good time while we're here. We have greater and higher calling to glorify God. And God has chosen to work through our weaknesses and shine through his power of provision, his glory, his victory, his salvation, and his gospel in the midst of weakness. He doesn't want our strength. He wants our weakness. And another commentator helpfully says, the Lord has more need of our weaknesses than of our strength. Our strength is often his rival. Our weakness, his servant, drawing on his resources and showing forth his glory. Man's extremity is God's opportunity. Man's security is Satan's opportunity. God's way is not to take his children out of trial, but to give them strength to bear up against it. If God says to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, my power is made perfect in weakness, I think we should echo that sentiment, that we can revel in our weaknesses as the foolish ones of the world so that we might have the strength of Jesus. Die to yourself so that you might live in Christ. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this good news that it is not of us. Thank you, Lord, for the way that you put aside your strength in Jesus to go to the cross. And in that moment of apparent weakness, you secured the greatest victory for us. We thank you, Lord, that uh, coming to you, belonging to you, doesn't rely on our own strength because, Lord, we wouldn't have the enough strength to make it happen. And, Lord, even if um, coming into your kingdom was by grace and, but staying in it was by work, even then, Lord, we wouldn't be able to muster up enough work to keep ourselves in your love, keep ourselves in your kingdom. We thank you, Lord, that it is all of grace in the midst of our weakness and our inability. Lord, we know that as a good father, you will bring us through times of trial and difficulty, but we pray, Lord, that you might help us in the midst of them. Help us, Lord, to be content with you, even as you chasten us, as you discipline us, Lord, even as you just lead us through times to help us build endurance and, 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 and a and to help us when we, our eyes might be turning away from you, to turn them back to you and, and trust in you. Lord, please help us in the midst of these trials, in the midst of this weakness, not to grow bitter towards you, 
Lord, we thank you for your many blessings to us, even in the midst of the difficulties in our weakness. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.